Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Flail Forward, where we are playing the finest in smooth jazz and avant-garde black metal. No, I'm just joking. This is a this is the dumpster fire. Welcome to the dumpster fire. The arsonists I have with me today are Karas Nauer. Hello. Catrice McLeod. Yep, burning away. Jonathan. Hello, folks. Cavoir. Yeah, hi. Mark. Hello. And I am your host, Rob. Today we're going to be talking about emptiness. Not the Zen concept, but emptiness in game design. What do you purposefully leave out? And I... Mark, uh, we were talking about it earlier, and I think you had some of the best breakdown of like some of the concepts we're going to cover. So if you want to sort of get us started on on uh, the the sort of empty regions within game design, that would be great. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking that in terms of like the the topic, emptiness in game design has a lot of different facets that you can deconstruct. Um, so even in terms of thinking of like, there's a physical emptiness that you can design into your game, like physically looking at what kind of space your character sheet or rules take up, um, physically like what miniatures or maps or uh, kinds of items you're using in the game. Um, and then there's a sort of uh, metaphysical or, or a, um, um, how should I say this? Like a conceptual emptiness, and that could be in terms of the plot, or in terms of um, interactions between your players, or just like a breathing space for um, the session that you're currently playing. Um, and each of these have a different way of, I don't know, interacting with the whole of your game. And you, as the game designer, have control over when and why you want these different elements in your game. Yeah. That's that's about the size of it. Um, the uh, the thing. So you, the first thing you mentioned was like the physical artifact of the game itself. Um, but I, that's I feel like that's less of a design thing, and more of a more of a sort of a product design thing. Less less in. Although you know, on a character sheet, I think it could be argued that that the 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 design of it is is the UI of the of the game itself, it is going to be the thing the characters, the players are interacting with the most out of uh, exactly. all of the material. Because I think it's about designing an experience. And if you consider it to the extreme, like everything that you provide the players or the, the game master when you're in the process of designing your game is going to influence how they perceive the experience of the game. And that includes what your your physical items are when you're playing the game, um, mm. whether that's in the design. And if you have a character sheet that's blank or empty, that conveys a feeling or an impression to the game and to the, the world, as opposed to a very busy and cluttered character sheet. Um, and there are times and places for either of these, but I think the concept of what your, your brain and your eyes need to process in interacting with the game is an important element to consider when you're designing that experience. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of this literally sounds like 
using white space on paper and a lot of it is but that sh that shapes how th that can shape how the players interact with the game materials like if you're designing a character sheet you want to put the most important fundamental most used stuff at the top yeah yeah or at least somewhere very For obvious example. where you can yeah yeah you also want to break just in general like the white space comment is one way to put it but another way to put it is like just having room for a breather like you don't ever see like even in an action movie it's not pulse pounding action every single moment there's always like relaxation periods so that you can catch your breath so that it can go full steam again like if you don't have that rest period then it just becomes tiring or becomes to a point that you just don't care anymore. It becomes that, that's true, but we're still on the the literal graphic design. Uh, I think it's leading in context of yeah. Okay. So I think that cat makes a point, and and it, it even includes uh, graphic design, and and even with the point that cat made, um, for some people uh, it can go too far, and I, I recall cat. Uh, making that comment with the game Monster Hearts about how much white space there was in it, um, in a sort of a in a negative way, um, just the fact that that we there's a middle ground, and even with that middle ground, it's good for some people and not others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from from literal graphic design all the way through tone and pacing. There's there's a spectrum of Spartan to crowded that you have mm -hmm. to manage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna say three quarters of the page being empty just feels wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair, but you touched on something I think that that can lead us into the next bit of this, and that was the the uh, contrast between uh, action and downtime. And that's something that uh, is is very close to RPGs because that we we in in many RPGs the the, the structure is uh, do adventure then have downtime uh, and this is the case I mean this has been the case for I don't know how long uh, but it's always been that sort of there's 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 action and then there's recovery um, there's periods of motion and then there's stillness and as designers what do we how, how do we design that into our games there's a couple of ways you can do it like one of the most basic and obvious would be if you're going to say set up a design set for how to build a dungeon level, for example. Like, we'll use like very generic setup. And it's like, okay, if you're going to be a GM or you're designing modules or whatever, and it's like, okay, you want to build a dungeon for like generic exploration, go in, kill monsters, get loot, whatever, you know, basic stuff. You can actually just at the design level say, okay, for about one quarter of the rooms should have more or less 
not nothing in them, but not a lot that stands out that is going to um, take up everything that's going on. You can just have a, a spot that players will be able to rest and relax and after like all the problems that they have, there's no traps in this area. There's no monsters or enemies or puzzles or anything. It's just some place they can actually sit down and relax for a moment. And mm -hmm. that's yeah, the, the intra danger space. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. like, if you're on a roller coaster, it, it has to have its ups and downs. Like you have to have like a period where it's not constantly rushing at you at all times. So just building that right into the just the structure of how a GM is supposed to build up this kind of an environment. That's one way you could do it. Well, just taking a step back or a step forward, I'm not sure which direction you consider this, but the if you look at the rule that requires that or it induces that need for that space, it's actually the rule of recovery. Uh, you need time to get better. And that's in the game. And that's what the designers designed. And whether they meant to or not, they, it meant that there had to be downtime. Yeah, because there's the downtime in the dungeon, right? And then there's the downtime between dungeons as well. So there's one of the things that I see more and more in, in, in games is uh, a codification of the intra-adventure downtime. Um, uh, like Blades in the Dark is a, uh, we come back to Blades in the Dark, but that's a good example there of of the in between each heist, you have this um, this section where you you can you spend loot, you encounter other problems with that, that arose because of the heist itself, and there's um, a sort of refractory period before the next heist. Uh, Torchbearer is another one that's uh, that has a codified downtime same with mouse guard um and mm -hmm. seeing that more and more do you do any of you guys have like a codification of downtime yeah i i made sure to design it into my game mm -hmm. um and it, it was very intentional that this was a period where um the players had control so in the other elements of the game i mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that the gm was the one who decided to move forward or decided to move on and like action happened because uh the the gm was an active participant and the story was unraveling to tell and in the downtime phase i wanted the players to be the ones to be the active voices um like they had more of the agency to say we're done here let's move on to the adventure mm -hmm. where we give the control back to the gm um mm -hmm. or exist in this phase for as long as they needed to um and i thought that that gave a little bit more power for the players to be able to say when they needed this rest and when how long of a rest they needed before they could move on to continuing the start the story or the adventure um because i think sometimes that's um a fine that's that's sort of a reflection period for the gm uh, where you can say, how is this story progressing? Um, are my players engaged or are they disconnected? And I think giving that rest period to the players to be able to say, you know what, we're having a good time, but like not because of this particular aspect of the story. So we're just going to 
hang out, have our own fun, and that's going to be our rest period. Mm -hmm. Or um, it gives a time for everyone to kind of stand up and and disengage for a little bit or be more relaxed and then come back to the game refreshed and relaxed to to pursue the next part of the story and plot that might be heavy or or, um, require a little bit more mental focus. I don't have, I haven't codified downtime yet, but I do have things that imply that such a thing exists. Hmm. Like I have rules for characters teaching each other their skills. Right. When is that? That's that's a downtime thing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you plan on codifying it more and adding yes. more? Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I yeah, I do the same thing. I um. I have a specific set of of moves or actions you take during, um, although it's not like I, I actually have two strata for that. So like I have there's there's combat and role playing encounters uh, where you're um, directly interfacing with the world on sort of a one to one time ratio, roughly speaking, um, and then I have adventuring actions, and then you choose one of those for each quarter of the day uh which you're being active and then but for me that was to more so to not codify a downtime type thing but to codify getting from place to place um and in doing so the downtime actions sort of presented themselves and i felt like oh that's actually probably an appropriate place to put those um, and then I have one level above that. So that's like each quarter of a day, right? It's an adventuring action. And then I have one level above that where it takes a look at fortnights and seasons. And there are things players can have their characters doing um, over those periods as well that are longer term projects that would be more considered like your standard downtime actions like uh, uh, crafting uh, gear or um, uh, inventing spells or uh, researching something, um, something like that. Although, what, hmm, the the I'm just trying to think about like what the downtime actions actually do. Um, mine have little to do with recovery. I only have so like on my adventuring actions, I have sleep and relax, um, and. In my longer term ones, I don't think I have anything like. Oh no, I do. I have one, and that's um, if your troop became fractured during an uh, during an encounter, your troop no longer trusts you, and you have to rebuild that trust. And I I do that uh, in in that longer term uh, uh, downtime action. Uh, so yeah, that's that's how I use them. That's how I've codified them. Um. So, what about you? No, go ahead. Has has anyone has anyone considered um, not uh, wanting or not having downtime and sort of that as a what they want in their game design? I no. don't think you could do that. <laughs> not no, not in any coherent manner. Yeah. Now, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it's feasible to expect that a adventure 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 continuum is practical or even desirable yeah um, 
Yeah. So what do you no. think, Ab? Okay, so I do actually have some weird things to say about this. Uh, mostly, I agree with everything, and I believe codifying and matching that it's a thing is important. I have brought a game where where the actual game time was all one continuous thing, but I but I made sure that there was breathing space in there. Like they, it wasn't always something terrible was happening, and like they had time to talk to each other and things like that. Even if there wasn't a set rest period that was happening in the universe or anything. Oh, uh, what game I was ran, that? Uh, it was how I ran. Uh, I think it was. Uh, sorry, uh, it was it was a part by the Apocalypse game. I don't remember. I think it was. I th- yeah. think it was Monster of the Week. I could be wrong. It was a dumb experiment, but I it actually so, results. Um, also, did a, th- a three part game that wasn't a full campaign like that, but that's way easier, way less weird. Yeah, I don't think it was a dumb experiment, uh, and and the reason or where I was going with this is, um, I've never played mm-hmm. Apocalypse World, but I've watched actual plays of it, and. Apocalypse World is a go 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 actually, and it, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it has. It no, has talking about Apocalypse World itself and recovery. Oh, okay, it, and okay, so fair enough. But I guess where I was going with this is that some games like to push, yes, um, and they do it intentionally. And th- it's actually part of the fail yeah. forward um, mechanic is that there's no no oh, yeah, time no. to do nothing. Things are happening a lot um, of times. Things should keep happening. It's just yeah. Uh, eventually, they sh- you should have you should get them in a position where they have breathing room. It's a thing that I think is important. Yeah, because that kind of relentlessness just gets draining after a while you have to have a respite from it yeah and it becomes flat too without the contrast you you it all sort of starts melding together or at least that's my Mm -hmm. sensation i don't necessarily disagree um i think that there's intended games that uh go for that uh design uh style oh uh for that the first time i did it was a was like Long time ago, I played a game of vampires that that took place over oh, I think it was like two days in game time. Uh, but mm. how long? How many sessions though? Ten. Oh yeah. my god! What wow, the fuck? Vampire in <laughs> so you were playing like real time. Well, it wasn't quite that bad. It was something like. Uh, I think it was actually slightly longer than two days, but like, super, but the entire thing was like one continuous thing that I was trying, and it wasn't like ideal, but and I had to like plan things around so that they could actually deal with it things, but it was it was a weird thing I tried, and I I liked a lot of the flow that it produced because hmm. uh, I basically when I I. I kind of don't like when people are traveling together for a long time in universe and they don't actually get any closer during the travel time. That's like my least favorite thing. 
That's that's mm. my least favorite thing mm. that happens. That's, in that's an interesting so motivation. I, I was on a yeah. I was on a real kick to try to play a game where that could never happen, and that's how that vampire game happened. It did actually work very well in the vampire one. I'll say that. Awesome. Huh. I'm gonna take that down as a note. Okay. So, do you cut in for a moment and yeah, go ahead. answer the original question. Um, my game does actually have three distinctive sets of downtime, each for a different reason. And it's not necessarily downtime, but it's basically a gap where things can happen. I find that's kind of the important part. So three main sections. The first one is between like your campaign. So it's like rather large section where you have time to, you know, do large scale things like uh, if you want to upgrade your equipment, if you want to work on the player's stronghold, or, you know, basically doing consistent things with, like, metaplots or travel or stuff like that, things that are going to take a bit of time, then you have a large open area for that. Uh, the next one is at the end of a session, or you can invoke it beforehand, but it's usually meant for, like the end of a section, it's basically a period of time where you basically get to talk to like your guardian angel and reflect upon what the characters have actually learned during the t period of time that they've been doing stuff. Like that's how you actually trigger your growth and such. Like it's a period of time specifically so that a, you can keep track of what happened, but B, you also get like your rewards, like um, if you've progressed any in that character's plotline so that the character's um, actual progression takes place. Since it's at the end of a session, it gives you time to do so, and there's no huge rush or hurry for it. The last type is meant for mid-session, and to be perfectly blunt and honest, I blatantly stole the concept from Grandia because I really like the concept of their meals. Like in Grandia for some weird reason it's just like a video game RPG, like old one on the uh, original PlayStation, but during the uh the game very frequently, like every half hour or so Basically, characters just sat down for a meal and discussed what they were going to do next, what their problems were at the moment, like what they were going to overcome. They gave like uh, pep talks to each other, you know, stuff like that. It's like just this period of sitting down to eat is a really powerful one, like conversation at the dinner table. And after having started to actually introduce it into actual games I've been playing in, I found it works really, really well, like frighteningly well as a just a, a catalyst for characters to talk amongst each other and so that it's not just banter in combat or something, but they actually get to learn about each other. It's surprisingly effective at it. Yeah. So... Yeah. That's, excellent. That's awesome, and I hope to implement something like that. Because that's, that's something that that's an 
a dimension of role playing that very rarely happens. I try yeah. my best to encourage it happening as because games don't yeah, because games don't encourage yeah, it. But the meal concept really works for that oddly. Yeah, it's a it's a good way to force them to go into that type to go into that type of headspace. Which is sometimes hard to trigger, especially if like they're not used to that being a thing. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Um I wonder, I, I was just thinking like like Carr had mentioned he would was gonna put something like that in his game. It's like, yeah, like I wonder if there's a space for, you know, whatever I'm working on. And um it'd be interesting to like ritualize, like just ask the players to ritualize uh something uh where uh, a part of the day where they talk about their day or something like that. It might sound stupid, but I don't know. It's you're right about how effective the meal uh, is for that that uh, situation. I think it's a really great concept. Yeah, because it it it's based on real life. Yeah, like the the kind of character development where you get really into the character's head that you see in movies, books, or all, in all across media doesn't role playing hasn't figured out how to leverage that or exploit it or there's a way to implement it it other than giving a pretext for okay now you're just having a conversation and then mealtime is a natural excuse to do that Mm mm-hmm well, there's no, there's generally not incentives to do it. Like incentives in RPGs are right. built around action, not character mm-hmm. development. Um, yeah, um, yeah, which is a problem. as an example of a game that literally incentivizes doing this. There's, well, some of these are negative, but that's just kind of the nature of the game. Uh, Urban Shadows has intimacy moves, which are theoretically could be like the equivalent of a fox's uh, world sex moves, but they also encourage. You, uh, they also encourage emo- if like there's a genuine moment of emotional bonding, it happens as well. And I generally mm. think that that's the much more powerful one and the one you should go with for. Well, it'd be like going on a date. It doesn't have to mean sex. I can just mean my yeah. No, it's really done this. Stuff. Monster Hearts and well, not my, not in Monster Hearts case actually, but like that apocalypse will just has the that just a. Uh, it has, the, the, the sex, sex yeah. doesn't have like an equivalent for like yeah. Mm-hmm. I I don't know what mm-hmm. I'm saying. But I do really enjoy yeah. like the other side of it that exists in Urban Shadows, and I think it fits the game quite well. No, I get what you're saying because like you're 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 saying that the you know the sex move doesn't have any lead up to it. Like you just you just throw the sex move and there, but there's no like there's no methodology for doing the setup uh, it's not just, even just that i feel like you should doing i feel like it makes more sense to reward two characters having a genuine conversation than to yeah i feel like mm. that, that mm-hmm. is something that yeah the, the 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 scenes that come to mind for me with this are in uh george r, r. martin's uh a song of ice and fire mm-hmm. when tywin lannister is at heron hall and Arya is the serving girl, 
she knows who he is, but he has no idea who she is. And they have these conversations anyway. Right. Yeah. Those are great scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be really, that would be hard to do, if not impossible on an RPG between two players. Um, I think between a GM and a player, you could probably, you would probably get away with that. Like players do that sort of thing where they, they pull one over on a, an NPC and, and, you know, but between two players, yeah, very tricky to do, have situations where there's hidden knowledge on one side, but not the other. Yeah. Um, but I, I, this is getting off of the uh, sort of empty space a little bit. Yes, it is. Um, although we are yeah. <laughs> talking, although I do think this is relevant to one of the major purposes of including empty space. Yes. Yes, it is. One one question that I had, Catrice, uh, you had mentioned that your one of your rest phases, you had said that you could invoke it. So why did you yeah. find that you you gave uh, the ability to enter that, or like to whom did you give that ability, and why did you feel that it was necessary to have someone sort of bring this phase up? It it was meant. Well, the purpose of it is that the characters are basically doing you know self discovery and stuff, right? So occasionally they can actually just call in. Essentially, they're overseer, like somebody who's is called their guardian angel, but they're basically just watching over them to make sure they're actually doing stuff. Like if somebody actually gets stuck, they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. They can basically use a lifeline, as it were, and say, OK, I'm actually going to call the person who's in charge of creating this puzzle in the first place to figure out what I'm supposed to do, or at least give me a hint. Mm -hmm. But it can also be used for um, describe, like if somebody has gone through like a major um, emotional scene, like something has really changed for their character that it's like, this was just like a huge thing that just happened. They might actually like need a moment to actually like process it through mentally kind of thing and having somebody to talk to like for example if they just died in a rather terrible way then in the period between when they die and they get revived they actually can discuss this directly and figure out where to go from there so yeah it just made sense to make it that you can invoke it but you can only invoke it once per session in advance uh, I see. Okay. Yeah. I, I just like the idea that um, the the need for this rest period potentially was in the hands of players, or I guess it depends on what the context is, but in your case, it's the hands of the player that says, uh, this is a period of time that I want to be uh, reserved for this rest that I can invoke once a session. Um, yeah, it's basically just being able to call time out. Exactly. Yeah, and it's a player rest as opposed exactly. or not ne not necessarily character rest. Although it may be, but it's more about the player. It, than... it can be both, but it's it's kind of more for the player. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's cool. cool. Yeah. I I have the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> I have... Also, the opposite. <laughs> well, I have I have an adventuring action called succumb, and that is you stumble upon a tableau of sadness or horror. 
uh, of the you know of the wrath, and you describe the scene, and your troop succumbs to the negative emotions, making them unable to focus on anything or feel comfortable anywhere. And what that does is it restores dread. So you diminish the dread pool because dread has effectively put you in a faded situation that would that would you know wreck you emotionally. That's 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 the that's what what that what is happening in fiction is like the dread is has built up and has led you to a place where you you are just going to be depressed for a minute. Um, and I I I considered like taking that out because it's such a weird thing to put into a like an adventuring action is just like my but it you know the reason i can your game i can see it working <laughs> yeah no like I, having having an option to have scenes like that is great for your game i don't yeah but that, that's ultimately why i kept it because it is the it, it, what's what a, because what a character does when they succumb is they do nothing right what a player is doing when they succumb is they are benefiting themselves and then also just getting up to take a break so they don't have to do any like that is the I don't want to do any book work right now. I don't want to do any accounting or any like I don't want to figure out or mess with my character. I don't want to you know, I'm just, you need to go to the bathroom, get a snack or whatever, and then you go I'm going to succumb, and then you get three three weird back, which is your your meta currency. Um, but it's there, it's there as a player break, more than a character break. It's like it's not giving the character a break. The character's suffering for a second, but the player gets to get up and not just do something else for a moment, you know, while the other players are, are, are mm -hmm. undertaking whatever their adventuring action is. It's not really opposite that I guess not. Though. It's thematically they're, opposite. Yeah. 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 You know, but that, they're both it, for the player. Yeah. They are both for the player. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's a good point. It is, it's not opposite in terms of the player, but it is opposite in terms of like feeling and theme. Like it's not this moment of self-discovery. It's this moment totally, of like, yeah. Oh, I can't deal with this anymore. Um, and it's just just collapsing in on yourself. <laughs> but yeah, I, I you know, and having mentioned that um, that uh, characters getting closer during travel and like meal times and stuff, I think I want to put in something like that too because I've had like I have a, a mechanism by which players um, the player characters eat during day. Um, it just comes out of the resources, which is the generic. Uh, catch-all for expendable stuff your troop is carrying. Um, but I think I want to put in like like Feast or something like that that, that you know, I, I'm going to think about that. Is an occasion. Yeah, as an occasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like there's a, like, I, I, if I'm going to have a succumb, I should have a celebrate too, I think. Actually, I was going to ask if there was a uh, an element that was reflective of succumb that would drain dread because it's a moment of they come upon a scene that just re gives them hope. Mm. Yeah, no. <laughs> fluffy bunnies. <laughs> Feel the fluffy bunnies. Why are there so many corpses? Yeah. Oh god, it's, it's both. both. Yeah, it's well that that happened in <laughs> Monkey Python. That's fluffy bunny, lots of corpses. Yep. One thing that I thought of, um, a lot of us seem to have design history for the players. Mm -hmm. um, like the that are acting as characters in the game. Do any of us have rest periods that are specifically designed for the GM to take a mental break or to say, you know what, like this is uh, we're taking a direction that I'm not, uh, I haven't planned for, I'm not anticipating. Um, this is like a period that the GM needs to cool down and rest, mm -hmm. and therefore there's something for the players to do where they can be engaged, but the GM can disengage um, or 
just like no, just out I of curiosity. That. That's a good idea. Because yeah. I haven't. That's, that's I haven't interesting. To design that. Yeah. I don't mechanic. know how much it would work to allow the GM to completely disengage, but if it seems like there's an opportunity in just the flow of the play to allow the players to kind of become self-sufficient and self-driven while the GM kind of keeps an eye on what they're doing, but can also make their own, their next preparations or react to what just happened. Right. Almost that like kitchen, that, that mealtime conversation where if the players are there to, to talk or uh, interact with each other, they don't necessarily need a judge present at the table and the GM can decide on what's happening next. Like if that was a mechanic in the game, I think that's an interesting way of yeah. looking at uh, the rest periods. So I, I, there's a little, there's a piece of that in Ashes right now. It's, it's not really a GM respite, but it is a, um, I mean, a, a lot of, a lot of Ashes is focused around the idea of player agency over many other concepts. And so um, mm. there's, when combat starts, um, because I'm not, the GM isn't necessarily preparing a lot of things ahead of time. That That's part of the design. Um the GM does need a minute to uh, quickly jot down the uh, enemy stats, which are short, but they still need like a minute to jot it, jot them down. Um, and I wonder if there's a place for that there where I can have the... Yeah, I'm going to think about that. That's interesting. I'm not sure how you can codify this, but um, if I like need an extra time and it's convenient and or if I know it's good to happen. Uh usually I don't have to be very involved in that but I have but I'm having them talk to each other and etc. Like having character scenes. So that's usually what I do it. But that's mm. not something I don't have to codify on purpose, basically. Right. That's part of that empty space, yeah. So I had a I've I've been sort of planning or thinking a lot about my own sort of more larger scale game. Which is yet to be some, yet to be named some stupid fantasy game, I'm sure. But I had a thought about um, flashbacks, which I, I sort of love the idea of flashbacks, yeah, and and playing them. And I I had a thought if um it would be cool if a flashback, a player flashback, the player took the reins as the GM, and the GM took the reins of that player's character, <laughs> and in in a way. You know, the player whose character it is is designing the the sort of the boundaries of the flashback for mm. the, the GM to act. And um, it was it's not it wasn't necessarily for uh, this rest period for uh, uh, GM, but it does sort of bring to mind an idea of like a, a change in pace, and it's it's mm -hmm. a different thought pattern for the GM. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that would be thinking about the work that the GM does, right? And their their mental load is is important, and I'm definitely going to be thinking about that moving forward. Uh, if it's possible to have within gameplay uh, break time for the GM, right, right. Well, I think or, I mean, or I think maybe, that... sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to comment on what you were saying. Like, I think that 
that particular approach is going to be fraught with problems and i wish you the best of luck with it because that's that, that sounds really daunting to actually design yeah, um, yeah the problems I, I, see. I think i have i think i have an idea that would make it somewhat easier the main problem if you're interested in hearing now uh, yeah, save, like... save it for after save it for yeah. after okay Just jot it down yeah sure we can talk after yeah or put it in voice buffer or something <laughs> yeah sure, that one too yeah oh, you were saying um, oh no it was it was nothing uh it was a comment in the same vein so i'm good to pass on it moving on in which case i will just state that the the eating a meal thing does work as downtime for the gm because gm doesn't need to do anything in that that's basically purely for the players to interact with another yeah and it can all you know it also would be interesting is if that becomes the action when an actual meal or snack occurs out, out of game. Because games pause for dinner, lunch, something, mm -hmm. coffee break, whatever. That would be, I, I had thought about that before, like trying to gamify that thing out of game, but I don't, that might be kind of interesting to design in. Mm -hmm. That's an optional thing. That would be interesting, but it would be tricky to time yeah the gameplay so that the meal scene in the fiction occurs just as the doorbell arrives with the pizza right yeah also, exactly yeah also talking also you know it's the, the players talking to each other so you know might have some complications there mm -hmm. yeah, yeah i can yeah. see that causing like a lot of potential issues like it's not necessarily a bad idea and i think that a lot of people, like a lot of groups, will just naturally find themselves doing that by default. Sure. But I don't think it should be like a orchestrated to try to do that unless that is comfortable for their particular group setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that well, that gets us into the the sort of um, uh, what was the sort of thing we should hit next? Uh, we should probably talk Our about break. Our break. <laughs> we could take a break. Yeah, it's been an hour or a little over an hour, a little under an hour, whatever. Um, do you guys want to take a break right now and then come back? Oh, sure. Sure. Okay. I'll just let run. Can okay. we have to talk about our characters? Chop. <laughs> See, in my experience, what usually happens when the pizza arrives is the player. One of two things happens. The. The meta conversation either completely turns IRL or it becomes a tactical planning session. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty accurate, probably. Yeah. Either, yeah, people <laughs> it depends on the game, but yeah, that's that's frequently like people will be like, oh, okay, we're gonna do this, 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 and this. And people go, okay, cool. And then mm -hmm. Or it becomes like, oh, dude, you guys see the the blankety blank on blank, or the moon new movie, or the yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's sure. that's the yeah. IRL part. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I think the idea of food, it, it's sort of interesting because I mean, take the meal that happens in, in the narrative, and they're eating and talking too. So what if you just said, okay, food's here for five minutes, you know, you're in character, or whatever, right? Like. I think I think it'd be. I mean, it's a that's bit of an, an interesting device. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, I, I, 
I think it might be inevitable and fall apart, but it would be interesting anyway. Oh, the idea I had about the um, <clears throat> um, the flashbacks thing mm -hmm. was there's a couple ways you could approach it. You could actually play it as a flashback, in which case I would set it up as player still plays their character, but they have prepped that scene. And everyone else plays the various NPCs in that scene. Mm -hmm. But the GM is still the GM. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's I, just that the GM hasn't had to do that prep work and lay out what's going to happen. The other way to play it is not as a flashback, but as the character telling that story. Yeah. Mm. And mm -hmm. the, the character tells the and 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 well tested we'll say that that's sort of the standard and and works well um yeah the, the way i had considered it is like if you think of your memories you just see everything and who better to narrate that than that player yeah for and, sure and all they really right. need to do is say to the gm yeah. like you know this is the outcome or this is what you're doing or whatever right depends on the nature of the scene. Um, mm -hmm. And it, yeah, I mean, it, it was just, it's just a thought and it, it literally happened today. And um, I think I'm going to fool around with it. Uh, yeah. But, the, yeah, but it would be definitely, yeah, the rest of the players just grab an NPC or maybe some of the players exist in that flashback. Maybe some. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Yeah. So. yeah, the way Blades in the Dark does it, it's, it's, a, it's a setup move. Mm -hmm. So it's less about character development, more about like I need a, I need a thing right now that I mm -hmm. that 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 I am going to have set up already. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I, I do the same thing in Ashes, but that's I mean, I mean, I have a little more narrow justification because my characters, the player characters have glimpses of the future, uh, so like it makes even more systematically. But I, I loved the flashback mechanic. Uh, yeah. and, so yeah, it, it's such a cool idea because it's like it cuts the 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 tedium of the the planning session for every eventuality, you know, yeah. like mm -hmm. it, it, which is so boring because it's like the and the it's silly too because like the players are doing all that planning in front of the person they're planning for, so it's not even like you're just telling the GM what you're planning for and if the gm's smart he's just gonna be like okay that's great that's how the story's gonna go like so it he, you know, yeah yeah, yeah. It, but it, it, it i've been at sessions where it just gets mired in people just going like oh well, what if this happens well what if this happens well what if this happens and then it just just like i'm dude can we just get to the game actually like <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes that is the game. Though. Like, yeah, that's fine. If that's the game, in a that's lot fine. of in a lot of Shadowrun games, that's basically half. Yeah, like three. It's another reason Shadowrun sucks. Yes, I, yeah, but well, I actually find <laughs> it's part of why Shadowrun's actually fun is that you're trying to do all the setup. Like, oh, we might need to have a way to get in past security. How do we do that? Well, how about we go talk to like the goth the guards and bribe them 
Sure. Or maybe we can seduce them or do something yeah. like in, in the sense of a it's, tactical game. It's looking at the board and figuring out where you're going to place your your men. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, no, and you're you're right, Kat. They're, they're like part of that is part of Shadowrun's gig. But the problem with that is that Shadowrun has too many eventualities in it. Well, yeah, that's why your heist always goes horribly, horribly right. wrong. But you which plan is, for as much as you can, and then it goes horribly wrong. Anyway. Yeah, which but, obviates the three hours you just spent planning. Like you just wasted three hours because you knew it was going to go so wrong. And you could have just jumped to the point where it went wrong, which is what Blades in the Dark does. And I can I can get three more hours of gaming in. Sorry, I'm I'm a little yeah. I'm a little 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 bitter bitter. No, I that. understand <laughs> the difference between the two. Like one of them's far more action oriented. I kind of like the planning. I like trying to set it up and figure out if you can do like catch all of the possible things that are gonna go wrong or figure it all out. Like it it's more like a like a puzzle game, if you can just say, okay, I press the button, the Rubik's Cube solves itself, and it's like, well, what's the point? Yeah, no, I and, you know, I, I actually like that, too. It's just that when <clears throat> there there's a there's a point of diminishing returns that I feel like Shadowrun hits way before anybody else does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But like, getting like back the to the flashback thing, yeah. if I can cut this <laughs> before right we ahead. resume, um, <laughs> the the big problem I saw with it when it was first brought up was the player surrendering surrendering their character to the GM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is so something I would frame this as: the player has prepared the scene, and when that scene happens, the player becomes a kind of co-GM with a with their own and their their character becomes kind of a GMPC. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm I'm I'll be straight up honest. Like, I'm I'm not feeling these sort of variations. <laughs> like in my mind, I'm like <laughs> the only thing like you can't die. Um, and yeah, that bring mm-hmm. that brings up the other issue, which is presumably any kind of flashback scene has a predestiny to it where it has to turn out a certain way. Yeah. And and that's I think that's kind of the cool thing because that that's what's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know. There's right. that one part in Bill and Ted where they had the uh oh, we went back and then we uh thwarted your plans. It's like, "Oh, well then we went back in time, and then we prevented you from thwarting our plans." And they went back and right. forth like right. 20 times sure. in a row and then it's like and then we had actually won all along, but we just went along with whatever you were saying and set it up so that it would look good for you because it looks good on stage. <laughs> and then Ashton, and then Ashton Kutcher appears and his and is weeping because his girlfriend is dead. Wait, what? Butterfly effect. Oh, okay. We jumped movies. <clears throat> okay, that was nice. we were jumping movies. <clears throat> Jesus, I got something in my throat. Hang on, I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, I, so there has to be some great. structure. <laughs> the, the structure is, it has to be. That. And I think figuring out what that structure is uh, will will be what makes it or breaks it. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know, though. That's going to be a huge challenge because even a GM that's prepared to do GM stuff, that's tricky. Asking a regular player to do it is an even bigger ask. Yeah, I think I should say the... In my mind, I envision like 15 to 30 minutes. Like, I'm not, not talking about taking over a session or anything like that. Um, oh, I think it would be totally awesome if a flashback turned into an entire session. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, it, it, it bears more thought for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. To warn you in particular, one of the things you had been thinking about early on when you first brought this up was the idea of switching the GM and the players so that the GM's controlling the player's characters. I highly advise against doing that part specifically, like having other yeah, things take place, but don't well, brought it up. Char brought it up, and now you're bringing it up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, okay, I, I understand 100% that's what you guys are And I... Okay, missed that. Sorry. <laughs> I inevitably will at least try it the other way. Um, it just, it to me... I guess I'm thinking from my own perspective, which is an all players perspectives. Um, but I, I think that there's there's value because in the end you get to say, this is how it ends. This is where it starts. Now get me there. Yeah, but part of the value of that for the flashbacking player is that they experience that flashback as their character. Not mm -hmm. from the outside. Maybe. Maybe. Part part of it as well is that once you have like you can look at how somebody plays a character and go, okay, yeah, I can see them doing that. But just because you can get an idea of when somebody else does something if it's right or wrong, being able to do it yourself is a lot harder to do. Like, making the GM try to play the characters as the players play their characters, there's a very, very high chance that the players are going to feel kind of sour, like, that didn't happen, that's not canon, that's not what my character would have done. Yeah, it, all, the, all the players have to... It comes down to how much a player trusts anybody else to maintain their character's fidelity. Right. But but picture this. A memory you have. Who can tell that memory? I I say uh, I can't tell it. You can. And I, I think we forget right. like the whole the whole scene is the memory. Not just what the character did. And that's why I think there's value in, in taking control of the whole scene, quote, as a GM for the moment or for that scene. Um, and by, you know, being very specific about the birds chirping or the raindrops or the thunder and lightning, you get to sort of express that memory in, in the whole big picture. Um, that, that's where I think the value is. And also you, you have the benefit of how I picture it of saying what the outcome is. And just seeing what happened. When when the flashback is over, the the game can. But 
I understand that. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy in it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna still think about it. I'm gonna probably write it out, and eventually it'll probably get playtested. But yeah, I I, st- I like the idea of it. And it, it's a good idea. It just has to be handled the right way. I feel like there are some people who would be totally okay with that, but there are also some people who wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which there is, are people who yeah. will murder you in your sleep. Sure, and the the nature of designing. <laughs> That's a good point. Thanks. I am yeah. not using metaphorical imagery there. No, I know. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Sleep people, very people lightly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Jesus. But anyway, we can. We should just get this out of our minds. Get back. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. All right. Do... So where we want? Let's, where we want to jump back in with? We want to do. Uh, <clears throat> what have we hit? We hit uh, downtime pretty thoroughly. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do we want to go like what do we open up like creative creative license within rules and within narrative? Ooh, and then there uh, is there is something about downtime, a particular kind of downtime that we have talked about, but like in banter, but not yet in in this session. Oh, what's and, that? And that is time jumps. Hmm. The mm-hmm. forward time jumps. You mean? Yeah, yeah, basically downtime that doesn't happen. I mean, that's that's kind of what downtime is most of the time. It is it is strongly implied often that like there. I mean, for me, the 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 the, the fortnight and the seasons are are implied that you say what you're doing for the whole two weeks or for the whole you know that those those months, and then you just skip to the next part of action. But are you saying like? I don't know. Isn't that okay, what downtime kind of is? Like you are doing time not, jump. Not really. It's I'm talking no. more like like we have so far discussed downtime as a period between adventure outings where the mm-hmm. characters are still doing stuff and it's noted. Right. I'm talking about a complete here's where we are now. And the next thing that happens is five years later, and we just completely oh, okay. skipped it. Right, mm-hmm. right. A completely um, yeah. undefined downtime. Right. Yeah. You might just, well, that's. You might or the minimally that. defined downtime, where it was like, okay, we saved the kingdom, and then we retired, and five years later, oh no, the king needs us again. So, what, mm-hmm. let's like. How, what do you see the benefits of that sort of down? Um, like for me, I would think things like character changes or like um, archetype changes, stuff like that. Like that's. Oh, I was going to say, Kevlar. Oh, go ahead. I, I, the, these are the things. These are the completely void spaces where just pure life happens. So, like five years later. We time jumped. Okay, now one of the characters has a toddler child. Yeah, and isn't going adventuring anymore. Or, like, that would be a way to completely change the party, like, kill characters off, stuff like that. Like, there's so many... Not a that... good example, but stuff like the, like the the time when life happens when the adventuring isn't. Mm-hmm. Or... Adventure prep isn't, you know, I don't right. know how many games would benefit from doing that because it's really a narrative device. Yeah, I know of one game that does do it specifically. 
um and that's uh houses of the blooded by john wick but that is that that's a weird game i don't know if any of you have ever read that but that is um what it is is you are actually playing a family where y- your um your the the character you change is going to be from the same family but of different generations like and you, you will do there will be big time jumps of many years in between um in between iterations of your of your character yeah so I, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen that before but like that's the only one i can think of like off the top of my head we do where where it codifies like a five twenty year later type thing where where you you are almost starting the campaign over I've seen it done in a video game. Fantasy Star 3 was, was the first one I remember. Yep. 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 That's the one I was thinking of. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It, it didn't work as well as it could have, but it was a good idea. Or doesn't the entire fan of Final Fantasy Saga have this thing where each game is a time jump sequel That's, to the previous knows? one? Who knows what Final Fantasy Final Fantasy is all over the place. Yeah. Um... Well, Zelda definitely does because you know, yes, every sure. Zelda game is a couple generations after yeah, the previous I, one. To bring back to RPGs, the first thing I wanted to say was, um, yeah, uh, the th- what's very going to be very relevant about that, but it's kind of like starting a new character, and like a lot of what's important is like a lot of it. What's happened is going to be discussed in like as like things that the characters are telling each other, and the other thing is I know another. A uh, game that works like that, and it's called, and it's called Rhapsody of Blood, and it's basically playing this weird. It's basically playing Castlevania in a really weird way. You have two games that do this that are both got yeah. blood in the title. Yeah, so no, I guess it's, it's like yeah, Bloodlines. This is also a game about Bloodlines. It's basically your the character you keep is like the organization that you represent, and then you have a different player character. A different character that goes into the castle in each generation. Yeah, it's um, so the long term breaks I think are actually super valuable and should be used more. If you take a game like D and D, which we often do to talk about, uh, why not get through, you know, all twenty levels in you know six months by playing third level for three sessions, sixth level for three sessions, ninth level for three sessions. That's funny. I've done that. Yeah, and but it totally makes sense. <laughs> what I yeah. actually mean is something like play up to level 10 and then 20 years pass and now the, the same party comes back together, but now they're all not in their prime. Well, yeah, that... Sure. But still 10th level? It, it's totally, hmm. totally another valid way. I, I was just implying that you could skip, use a, a year's time jump to increase level theoretically too, right? Like, it 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 works in many ways. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I think that pretty much wraps up downtime. I think we pretty much. Do you guys? Is there anything else you, anybody wants to mention about uh, downtime? Before we. Uh... I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Well, the next thing we wanted to touch on was the the empty space inside of <clears throat> inside of our rules design and uh, also inside of the narrative. Those things kind of go together. So where we do not 
Douglas Adams has this term called uh, that that he uses uh, called rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty that I really like. And what that means to me is you design up to this up to a line and then you let that line define the empty space inside it. So you're you're creating an outline for kingdom shaped Boundary. boundary right but what's in the kingdom itself you you don't tell them and you're leaving that up to them so they can fill it in that's an example of within the narrative within the rules games are often designed with things they purposefully leave out such that the the, the players are given either freer reign inside that creative space or the game doesn't deem it important enough to actually codify but i think for our purposes we're more interested with the creative license inside those rules. So uh, the question here is what what are you guys not designing in? Where where are your rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty? Within my rule set it's pretty obvious and that's the setting itself. Right. There's direction. Um and yeah, I guess that's it. I don't know. I, I'd be interested to hear how you guys perceive that. Uh, in the sense of there's a bunch of questions which help form, but the, you know how you answer them is sort of open. Yep, and I I think mine is really twofold in what I try to do. Uh, one is definitely the setting, and I'm trying to put in guidelines for um, adapting the setting in session to what the players want and what they're um, moving towards or what their experiences are leading to in terms of a theme or or direction. Uh, And that's one area of sort of emptiness in the design where I want that to be filled creatively. Um, And again, similar to Jonathan, I want to have guidelines where I I know that this will be filled in some way, but I don't know in what precise uh, method it'll be filled in. And then the other way is with uh, um, characters themselves. So I want all the characters to be developed from a a complete blank sheet and then have them grow as a function of what actions do they take and why are they taking those actions. Um, And that's an area of complete emptiness, like the, the ideal version of this game is that you have a blank character sheet and that based on the actions that you're taking, it's filling it in. So, Right. So your you're rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty are characters. Characters and setting. Those are the two that are... Yep. <laughs> and so, it's yeah. almost like... The rest it's is... It's almost like generic... So what? No, you're right. I mean, it's like, yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's, it's almost like generic game plus... It's like yeah, because generic games like don't you know specify setting. You're like I don't specify characters either. So mm-hmm. right. yeah, well, yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean that you do, but not not in a way that most games do character creation. You're like here's a blank sheet. That's you right. Create your character through the play, not prior to it. Yeah, exactly. And what I'm trying to provide is the uh, structure, the guidelines to what creating your character actually. Um, can result in like which direction does this go so what's important to the action that you're taking and that's what colors in your character so um, mm. i think the guidelines are important just to highlight i don't know what you're going to say as an answer to this but what i care about 
specific to this game is is denoted in the rules. Mm-hmm. Eric Kavor, I think I cut you off. It's fine. I was actually talking about Martha. You don't have an explicit setting, but you did. But a lot of what you're designing, like you're not giving them nothing. You're giving them. This is the type of set, the setting is the type of setting where X and Y happen. Not, not. It's not like a setting like it has X Y Z. It's a there's kind of what it got from the version of your game I read, which might have changed. Is there's like a kind of a, an idea that has to be present, and like an idea that you you're hopefully going to help people shape. That's right, and and the shaping is what I'm. I'm developing more of is um, how do you start with that nugget of an idea of your setting and how do you uh, adapt and add on and continue to add to that, that building around that, that uh, first little structure. Do you, a question, are you planning on designing in like setting prompts for people? Like, because you do have there, I mean, there's a certain amount of setting implied, uh, but do you are you planning on doing stuff that, that gets more specific in different directions? So, the, or are you relying on whoever's GMing to come up with the setting whole cloth? Um, so originally, and I think the version that you guys last read, it was very much the GM's uh, agency to to create that plot. Um, and now I'm moving more towards a a an open ended or sorry a, a question prompt um, like a session zero where there wasn't a session zero in the original version there's definitely one now where I want the players to collectively create that first impression of the setting and then throughout the game dynamically there are other factors that contribute to writing down permanent aspects of the setting and the world uh, and the characters themselves can contribute to like building the lore of the setting that they're in. Cool, cool. You also had a few example settings in the back, and even the version we read, but that's they were very loose and bare bones. They were just like the types of yes. ideas. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I definitely want to uh, have those kinds of prompts, but just to fit them in the the code of like these are the que- the answers to the questions that I want to ask. Um, so right. that they these are this is how you could fill in those those empty spaces that I'm leaving for you. So creative license within the rules. Um, we have within that concept, the idea that um, like, for example, Mark, your game, uh, either the, the, the character sheet that you're filling in as you play is uh, like a list of abilities that you, you can improve and acquire as you do them. Yeah. Or do you start off with all the abilities? You start off with all like the magic stuff and the, the, fighting and the the uh was it bombs did is that yeah, still yeah. in there that was so that, have... that's that's all moved uh the, okay. the core concept is the same where you, you mm-hmm. have sort of pillars of what define your characters and uh-huh. then um everyone can access these like core pillars um mm-hmm. and they're sort of like your your motivations and um, your physical skills um and it's dependent on what is what is driving you to those actions that I'm trying to build on. So I want cool. I want the players to define cool. like this is what's important to me. Like I am doing this because I care about saving innocence, and that act of mm-hmm. choosing to I want to save innocence is the thing that can improve and become a stronger part of who your character is as you continue to take actions that revolve around that 
concept or that belief. Um, right. So it's different from a set of actions. Okay. I want it to be more. So this, of a, this is yeah. this has actually been changed pretty radically yeah. since, since it's, we last saw it. It's taken some some weird turns. Uh, yeah. Cool, man. But, uh, uh, I dig it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that sounds. It sounds like it sounds like there's <laughs> there's there's convergence in a lot of our um, space conceptually. Like, and, and right. that, that's interesting to see because, like, you know, you're going to approach the idea of 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 um, uh, player driven story differently than I will, and I'm I'm, I'm interested to see how you do it. Um, I'm excited. <laughs> but what I was what I was no, I, I mean, it's really it's really interesting. Um, but the the thing I was was hoping to, hoping to lead into from that is the idea of the um, the the showroom versus workshop concept, and the, the broadly outlined the showroom are are games where you have the big list of abilities that you select from that necessarily leave things off because you can't include everything, and mm. that's a part of the empty space within games that do that. Like Ashes has that where. There are certain times I ask the players to choose from a list of um, available powers or available uh, uh, improvements to their character, um, and I I don't, you know, I, I keep those lists short purposefully because uh, I I personally don't like really massive lists of abilities that I I have to sort through, um, but the alternate to that. Uh, approach is the the approach of the workshop where you build the abilities out of pieces and games like GURPS. That's one where you the GURPS supers particularly comes to mind where you actually build the superpowers. I think Heroes does or Hero does that too. Um, though I haven't I haven't played Hero, but I have played GURPS supers. Uh, but and though though, but even in that you have things that are emphasized or de-emphasized um, on the part of the designer within within the toolkit of the workshop. Yeah. All right. So since Rob basically talked over my entire... No, you're pretty oh, much I'm sorry. I was just introducing the concept. No, we can unpack some more. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, okay. Here's the unpacking. Okay. Um. And when I first said this on Reddit like two and a half years ago, I called them patterns, mm -hmm. design patterns, <clears throat> showroom and workshop. Mm -hmm. The showroom pattern is where the designer devises a list of options from which the player must choose. And those are the options that exist. Mm -hmm. The workshop pattern is more conceptual, where the designer presents an idea and the player is expected to add some more texture or definition to that. Mm -hmm. So it would be the difference between having a, like Legendcraft has an allergy flaw. I don't say what your allergic, what your allergy is or what your reaction right. is. You just have an allergy. The players is expected to fill in the rest of the detail. As opposed to, and that's that's what what that's what a workshop does. Conversely, would you a, consider? Oh, conversely, a showroom pattern would codify twenty or fifty specific allergies into the rules, and have the player pick from among them. 
Right. Which is a lot so of upfront can... work for the designer and takes, maybe this is a design choice or maybe it's not, it takes some of the investment away from the player or an investment opportunity away from the player. So if I'm here, you, you think that the, it, do you, would you consider the showroom an inferior model to the workshop? Um, not necessarily because every game has to have lists of some sort. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just a matter of how many lists there are and how, how much of the, the, how many, how many of the opportunities the games present are enshrined in those lists. Mm -hmm. So a workshop can't really exist without being a showroom because you have to show off the tools. Right. Um, the difference comes the the difference comes down to who has the creative um, load. Does the, mm. does the designer take that upon themselves in order to maintain control of narrative you possibility, or does or do they let the players have that? Yeah. So would you consider a showroom has a lower showroom has a lower barrier to entry, but workshop is way more flexible. Yeah. Would you consider then like a game like Fate, for example, where it it does have lists of like stunts, right? It's like stunts that you 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 pay a fate point for during character creation, then your character can do that thing. Um, but you, it's sort of, it's sort of left fuzzy, uh, as to what it is. Would you, is that to you more of a showroom or more of a workshop? Um, I think in, in the case of fate stunts, it, it kind of falls into like, there's a continuum between the two patterns and fate stunts mm. kind of falls in the middle but it's also kind of the thing where i said before of you have to have a showroom of tools in the first place right right like, yeah the workshop um, is but like but things like champions and gurps pretty much any point based game is going to be more workshoppy but right D, D is entirely a showroom mm-hmm it doesn't let the players have any creative agency beyond which things they pick. Right. In fate, going to yeah. yeah, in fate, it's like the workshop is the use of the the thing, in the sense of like, I have a sword, but I can use it like hammer or whatever. Like you, you because the stunt is. Like you said, you, you can kind of use it in a lot of different um, ways. Um, yeah. The work, and you're sort of workshopping while you're playing. The workshop, That's how by I its very nature, has play. a larger cognitive load on the players and a larger responsibility for them. You have more options, but if you do that, you have to deal with the fact that you're dealing <laughs> with more options, which can be good. Sometimes it's better mm -hmm. not to Which, have as many options yeah. when designing a showroom or a a workshop kind of system 
it's important to design the tools in a certain in such a way that they're all distinct and have their own boundaries. Hmm. And intrinsically limitations. Yeah. So because you don't want you know one use of a tool to build something else to build something become and then have some another player use different tools to build the same thing yeah that's kind of a problem with um the hero system that was mentioned previously there's a lot of ways to come up with the same thing through different means some of those will take like and a lot of times those a lot of times in hero those redundancies one of them is one path is much more obvious than the other so that it that plays into the amount of system mastery that hero requires to 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 build efficiently in yeah that really bugged me about it it's like you can develop the exact same ability like three or four different ways one might cost five points the other might cost 50 and it's like that's really or (laughs) yeah 15 or the obvious crude way to do it costs like 400 points, but someone who's really good at pushing the boundaries of all the different components can build that same end effect for 15 points. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. The, yeah. There's... The, there, there's a danger with... Or... Let's see. The building a workshop requires more work on the designer's part. Yeah. Because everything has to work together and maintain some semblance of balance and distinction and all of that. And cohesion, coherency, and, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're you're not building a machine, you're building the parts of a machine. Yeah. Yeah. And you're also building a machine to make and unfortunately, machines. Unfortunately, you run that. into the same problems yeah. as if you have yeah. a linear path or a branching path. As you add the branching path, you now need to know how every single branch works together or which ones you can go down. Like As soon as mm-hmm. you do that, you are like increasing your workload by absurd amounts which sometimes is worth it yeah yeah but are there ways to design a workshop such that there is emptiness within it such that such that you you i mean so i when i when i went did a new new pass on my skills for on the skills trash and i totally taught the skill system and replaced it with this system of approaches um I feel like I scooted along that <clears throat> along that continuum closer from showroom to workshop, but the showroom workshop thing is not happening at character creation. It's happening in the middle of the game with with the available actions to the player. Uh. <clears throat> Whereas before they had a list of fifteen skills that were rather discreet, um, and but. The downside to that is it took up more space on the character sheet. And um, there was, because I'm asking the players to track up to four party members, that ends up being 60 
places to look, right? So you have 15 skills times four, and now you're looking at all this stuff. Whereas I, and now I cut it down to this sort of fuzzy logic approaches where I have only only nine skills per uh, per character, uh, and they aren't even there's not even nine skills it's three approaches across three um attributes and so the approaches stay consistent across all three attributes so you're only really remembering three things uh but different applications of those things but they became much less here's how you approach a certain problem and here's the skill you use in this situation and more of a hey players Fluff this skill roll however you'd like, but this is, and I haven't I haven't really finished it yet, so I, I really need to like I have to define more about what is used when, but it facilitates that 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 fiction first approach where you first say what you do, and then grab the tool in the toolbox that most closely conforms to what you just said and then let that output the fiction um and as get, uh what's it go ahead to get to get back to the question that was in yeah. there <clears throat> um the two patterns are different approaches to filling space yeah so the the showroom pattern wants to fill space with discrete things that mm -hmm. are of a certain size and really there's only so much so many of those things you can put in the space before you just start bulking up the game yeah whereas a show or a workshop wants to fill the space with gelatin that the the player comes along and takes that glob and sets it. Mm. One thing I would... That's an interesting and gross metaphor. One yeah, thing sure. I'd state as well, though, is that because of that, the, the showroom model basically has a lot of empty space because anything that is not explicitly put in there and is not rigidly defined is empty space. It's empty is absent yeah mm -hmm. so a a workshop pattern can can more effectively fill the same space than a showroom can right it's hmm. it's more extreme it's a so the um sorry the um workshop is more um balanced like you it's uh it exists in both state it can be there it can't be there at the same time it just depends on who's using it and how they want to use it and then mm -hmm. the showroom is very much all or nothing it either exists and it's very clearly defined or it'll never exist and that is not part of this game and not part of the, the concepts that we want to play with um right so rob to to use ashes as a example the mm -hmm. most workshoppy thing in Ashes is the callings because they're open questions. 
Yes. Yeah. Whereas all your skills and to a lesser degree, your, your new approaches, things are, are more showroomy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's on purpose because I didn't, I, I was not interested in designing a generic game. I was interested in designing a very specific one. And, mm -hmm. um, and also part of my, my goal was to have, was for the players to, to have the output of a fairly balanced set of characters um, fairly consistently. So in doing that, you either have to design a very simple workshop, like, like how Fate does it, where it's, uh, you know, you, you, you select a thing, it gives you plus two to a thing, and then you move on. Um, but to me, that's not, uh, that, that, that uh, never really struck me as that interesting. Um, or it's, it's not really as workshoppy as is. Yeah, it's, it's it's definitely still a showroom. Yeah, but it's I guess it's a showroom, but it, it's it's kind of uh, I don't want to say lazy. That's not the right word, but it's um like the abilities don't actually do that much in terms of change how you can interact with the fiction. Generally, it's like, here, you can use this skill for this kind of role instead, or in this specific situation, get a plus two. But it doesn't actually give you a new ability or a new way of interacting with, with the fiction of the world. It just sort of codifies how you got a bonus rather than tell you something about your character. You know what I mean? Um, well, the 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 key distinction between showroom and workshop is whether or not there is an ask put on the player right so like mm. like legendcraft has about 30 flaws and about 30 um merits and mm -hmm. they're analogous to the dozens and dozens of Adds and disadds that GURPS has, but they cover the same space. Right. And in my case, right. if I was to yeah. create the same type of system, I'd be inclined to just say, make up a flaw and make up a merit. Even more workshoppy. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. But the danger with that being completely freeform about it is that players tend to want to have at least a basic raw material to yeah, work with. Yeah, I'd say that doesn't even mm -hmm. really count like, as a workshop they, at that point. That's like just like, okay, here's like some protons and neutrons and electrons. Make make a bear out of this. I it's mean, like that yeah. might be a bit much. I respectfully well, it is a disagree. <laughs> It is a it is a workshop in the sense that, like like a blacksmith, as long as a blacksmith can make a hammer, they can make anything else right. that they need. Yeah, so and they, and I, I wasn't being facetious, but but when we make these decisions as a designer, we have to think about how the rest of the game directs the players to make it work. Mm -hmm. And. Um, 
the more freeform the workshop gets, such as going the entire way towards make up a flaw, now the game has to be designed in such an abstract way that it can handle any arbitrary thing the player thinks of, which can be difficult. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I think I, I agree. And and not to get too deep into different design philosophies, but I think one thing that makes me sort of willing to go down that road is that there are as many edge case players in in uh, workshop games as there are in um, a showroom game. Uh, so yeah, it, it's it's there's there's a big space for um, sort of picking a design route. And per- personally, I think I, I'm leaning to uh, uh, workshop, but understanding the need for uh, uh, showroom. Mm-hmm. Right. It, 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 um, or at least the showroom of tools that, that Carl was describing earlier. Yeah. 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 So um, the, the edge, you know, in a workshop, ideally the game has already been designed in such a way that most, if not all of the edges are already accounted for. But in a showroom to account to accommodate those edges, you have to make something on the fly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where you see that's where you see you know the the uh the player generated classes in D D Adam. Mm-hmm. Because because you need to people are responding to a need that 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 class based systems often fall short of specifying a set of abilities or a fiction that um, the players feel is exactly what they wanted. It's very hard for class-based systems to do that. You class-based systems have to function off of archetypes, and um, yeah, it, it's 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 hard. the The risk with any showroom system is that some player will look at all the options presented and feel like none of them is what they want. Right, yeah, it's something I've worried about in Ashes for sure, because, and especially with with a setting that's, um, so specific, that I I have it's something that's crossed my mind multiple times. Like, <clears throat> how, what if I, what if I, like, who am I catering to? Like, what kind of players is this? Is this catering to? Am I? I'm, I'm definitely not catering to like the hard sci-fi people that just want to be on a starship. I'm like, like, I don't have to worry about those people, but I am catering to the sword and sorcery people. Um, but am I catering more to the, the D and D end of that spectrum or like the Conan end of that spectrum? Um, and that's something that's always been in the back of my head. Like what, how do I design my, my showroom as, as, uh, as we're calling it to, maximally engage the highest number of players you know it's not even and that's in the broadest sense you're talking about even showroom versus workshop you're you're talking about the facility just in a complete abstract 
the um, game itself. Well, yeah, the game itself, yes, yes. Uh, but that's in 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 trying to figure out how to structure my my characters. It's it's been something I've been concerned about. Like like you know, can I? How many how many fictional characters can my system represent? You know, like right. How, how many degrees? Where, how many degrees of conceptual freedom is there within it? Yeah, can can somebody make Conan? Can somebody make um, Varus? Uh, Varus, yeah. Can some can somebody make uh, uh, Elminster? Can somebody make you know? You take your pick of a fictional character. Uh, mm-hmm. Could somebody reasonably construct that? Um, it, it, and you know, the times where I've answered no, it's been something I actually thought about and put into the game as that piece of emptiness like no it, the game doesn't allow you to do this and i'm okay with that uh, i hope you're okay with it too but like I, this is this is you know the spot where i'm not catering to uh people who enjoy mind reader characters you know uh, mm-hmm. i i don't have that as a feature very specifically um types of types of characters where um like I I'm not getting rid of villainous characters either. Um but are you disallowing them? There's there's a no, distance there. No. I, I am I am allowing players to act villainously. It's just they're not <clears throat> they're not going to be rewarded for it generally speaking. Um so I don't disallow it, but but the the incentive structure of the game is is such that uh, it strongly incentivizes heroic action. Um, however, however you define it, which is maybe a little different, but it, it it's still asking you to define your core motivations at the start, and then and then rewards you for pursuing them. But I don't have any specifically villainous core motivations listed, um, and that is a that is a that is a hard list of. This, the, the things that I want the game to be about. So that's part of designing that emptiness in is like I'm <clears throat> creating, I'm, I'm purposefully excluding certain choices from my showroom, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what about um, moving away from sort of uh, the character uh, to mm-hmm. the narrative? and uh design space or empty space around the narrative the 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 same showroom and workshop patterns apply like you can design combat with a long and intricate intricate list of moves or you can set up a very short list of broadly applicable moves that can be interpreted in the moment hmm. so it's, it's not just about character creation it's it 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 can apply to the entire play loop right yeah and i suppose in part i was talking or i had in mind um sort of the the gm role slash player role and the the mix of those or potential mix of those uh, as being like narrative empty space in the sense of, of GM may leave 
space open for the players to add to the the broader narrative. Are we getting? Hmm. Are we? Is this the move into world building empty space? Like, like there's nothing on the map right there, kind of thing. I mean, I suppose that's part of it, but it could be. That, yeah, it's definitely part of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do, well, before we before we uh, move on to that, is there anything else uh, anybody wanted to bring up? No, I think I'm good. I guess not. <laughs> no. All right. Then the world building stuff is cats, I believe. Oh, cats all over that stuff. <laughs> oh dear. Um, in terms You're... of like world building empty space like just leaving empty spaces on a map um i think that does get back into the rigidly defined areas of uncertainty where it's like you spell out that yes there is something here it's like there is a temple it is here what kind of temple i don't know you guess you'll find out when you get there won't you uh, a lot of stuff like that like just saying that there's Something on the map is one form of leaving it uncertain, but another is you have like every single thing on a map that happens to be described, and then you have like one area that's just blank. There's just like literally a hole, and it looks like a torn off section. It's like that's going to make people want to see what's in there. Like, it doesn't just have to be maps either. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also be, like, anything mm-hmm. else. It's, like, um, one of the common examples. Of... Oh, look, hey, where's where's this Burgo? Yeah. Or another common example I use is, like, just the idea of, say, you're sitting down for a meal, and the hostess sits down and she's got her own plate and it's completely empty and everybody else at the table provides one piece of their meal and puts it on her plate and then she sets it aside and never eats from it the hell does that mean like there's obviously a symbolic meaning for this but it never tells you what it is like there's obviously something empty there that you really want to fill in the blanks, but you don't know what it is. And it's that kind of unresolved sort of concept that really makes people think about something for a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the game, the game that really prompted me to think the most about this um, in terms of um, def- designing in empty space into your world uh, was not an RPG. It was a video game, uh, uh, Bloodborne, which has um, it, it. It follows the FromSoft uh, sort of. So if, if you know Dark Souls, um, it's it's more or less like that, where the the story is disseminated to the player in little tiny bits that you sort of have to like. If you play through Bloodborne and don't read any of the item descriptions. You will not understand the story. It's it's that like esoteric. You kind of understand what's going on. Like there's monsters, and then there's another monster, and then there's a guy, and then you kill the guy, and you're awake. And it's like, oh, it was all a dream. It's like, no, no, 
<laughs> no, no, no. It's way deeper and crazier than that. But you actually have to like dig to get there. And what what the director of Bloodborne left out was as important as the elements he put in. Like, I mean, big gaps and like, like, you know, the story doesn't make any sense at first glance. Like, and that's the the experience, the the enjoyment I got from sort of like picking away at like the little pieces of it and pulling on the little threads and being like, oh, this is just like this over here. And then this part, it's like, oh, wow, I understand why that is now. That's interesting. Um, and I, I, I've been trying to go for that sort of, um, I want to replicate discovery. The, the discovery. Yeah. But that environment where discovery is possible, you know, a framework within which the, the, uh, the, the, the GM can provide, um, players with those threads. And then the threads actually have something at the end of them, which is the tricky part. Um, so I don't, I'm not interested in doing just the adventure hook, but like putting something at the end, but then not defining the middle. Um, well, keep in mind, you don't always necessarily want to define the end. You usually want to define most of the endings, but you want some of them to be left open. The ones that you leave open are the ones that stick with you for the longest period of time that you dwell on. Mm. Yeah, but that's a good If there's good point. too many of them, then it's unsatisfactory. Yeah, yeah, the balance is hard to maintain for sure. It's something I think I'm, I'm going to need to be very careful of. I mean, like I have, so I have like a sort of precursor race in in Ashes. The, these these this race of giants that are roughly uh, analogous to like many other mythological precursor giants, like uh, the Anunnaki in in uh, Sumerian myth, or like the Titans, or um, uh, you know, uh, the, the snake people in Lovecraft. Um, but I've talked about them only tangentially on purpose. I haven't defined their powers, what they did, why they left, like what happened to them. Um, and I, that's something I just want to leave in the game for individual GMs to decide. Um, and then I have some terrain features. Like, for example, I have this giant silver orb just hovering over the ocean that's like a couple of miles across. And I have no idea why it's there. It's just a no, giant no, 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 silver see. orb floating no, above the see, ocean. You edited edit this out of the video because you're doing the editing this time? Mm -hmm. Oh, you, yes. <laughs> you remove that. You say that I know exactly why it's there and I am never going to tell you what it is. <laughs> or yes like no one will and after that and after that revelation you don't edit this out of the episode. <laughs> yeah but one of the like that does really work like one of the biggest things that i've ever seen done with that was on mm -hmm. diablo 2 actually um uh, there was like a button in the user interface online whereas oh yes you clicked it it said gem uh -huh. activated you clicked it again gem deactivated and occasionally it would say perfect gem yep. activated and they never told me what they ever would admit to was it was working as intended and occasionally they would reference it in like one of the patch notes but they wouldn't say what it did just that they made an adjustment to it 
<laughs> I know. I don't think it did anything. As I recall, like they, they talked about it. Oh, didn't somebody like go into the code and like try and figure out what exactly there was happening? There was a theory thing? for a while that it increased your magic drop chance by 10% if you had a perfect gem activated. But I don't think huh. they ever proved that. Yeah, no, I, I remember that thing from from Diablo too. So yeah, that, that but that's yeah, no, that's a, that's a good little tidbit to bring up, like because that was that's something that's hard to do in RPGs. Like you have a little bit of interactable stuff that you don't define the outcome of, and then the players can't really detect it either, and it just sort of <laughs> sits there being this like thing they can't stop poking. I uh, think some of the best like emptiness leading to mystery or curiosity or intrigue mm -hmm. uh, is in legacy games because mm, you yep. often have these big blank oh, spaces yeah. where you're you're waiting for something to fill in um, or mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a mystery you're trying to unravel and that becomes something that you learn throughout the game um, and whether like I think Rob you and I have talked about this before where we can try to incorporate elements of legacy games into RPGs, potentially. And I think there's a really cool space yep. for that in the near future. Um, well, that is what and, I'm doing, yeah. So, And, well, it sounds like there's certain elements of the story that you intend to reveal yourself, and there's certain elements of the story you never intend to reveal. So it's sort of like a, a, a cross, like you want other GMs. There's, well, yeah, but, it, well, there, there are legacy mechanics in Ashes whereby mechanics are revealed to players as they play, and GMs. So the GM doesn't actually know the mechanics before the game starts either. So I don't know if that's going to work. That might be a total disaster. Um, that, has not, that has not had playtesting yet, because I have to actually get the rest of the game to a point where um, that's stuff, because it's, it's stuff that has to be revealed over the course of a campaign. So it's not, it's not like I can really... Um, just throw those out in a playtest and see how they land. Like I, I, it ha you, I can't decontextualize them for the rest of it. So, uh, so something you yeah. need somebody else to be the GM for to see how they react to it. Yes, you that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've already got a few volunteers for that, okay. so that's good. But like, yeah, I, I definitely need to have have. Um, yeah, I think that the, the filling out the, the the distinctions and the approaches is pretty much the last piece of the player kit I was not satisfied with. And once I've finished that, that'll be, I think that'll be really solid. And then I can I can hopefully move on to playtesting other other stuff. Yeah, I just like that idea of the um, emptiness leading to intrigue, which is what draws people in. Like, yeah, there's there's an aspect of it that is for creativity's purposes like you you have a you never define certain aspects and you expect that a gm will just sort of fill in that lore so that they can continue with the the world and other aspects are there specifically because you have an answer to them and you want players to search for mm -hmm. that um and i like i like the combination or to see the the different ways that you can use the same sorts of elements, whether in plot or in mechanics, to to drop the world building. Yeah, exactly. Because essentially, what we're talking about with either empty space on a map or whatever is is either world building hooks or 
just idle narrative hooks that are there just waiting to be bitten at. Yeah. Like, yeah. and games have been doing this for a while because I remember back in the second edition days, the giant fold out forgotten realms maps. Oh, those are so cool. Yeah. yeah. They had little like named icons in various places that were mm-hmm. never defined. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't even in the book. Like, if you looked in the Gazetteer, like, it, you wouldn't see that name anywhere come up. It's just like, mm-hmm. man, what's... What, okay, so what do they think is in there? And, you know, I remember <clears throat> when I was running a game in, in Forgotten Realms, the... I was really interested in, like, the rest of the thing. And, like, what, like, all their different, like, things they were interested in and getting into. And, like, so I had them, like build up this little network you know on the way to water deep of like red wizard safe houses that you know but they were in like the, the but the, those little nameless cities gave me the opportunity to like put them on a place on the map that the players could be like okay we checked this place we checked this place oh okay then you know then it must be in this other place like you know backwater or the or little, yeah yeah or the little named hillocks that were in the wilderness around water deep or the little, you know, skull and crossbone things that were in the desert of Anorak. Right, right. Like, even yeah. some I, th- things on the map that didn't even have that's names. something that we actually need to point out for the, this entire discussion. Like, the entire time we've been talking, we basically have come to, like, one major conclusion. Carp touched on it, but moved away a little too quickly, I think, was that empty space isn't it it's not that it's empty it's that there is obviously something there you just don't know what's in there yet and it may not be that there's something in there yet it's that when you go in there sometimes you are what's in that space or what you bring with you yeah it's not that it's it's not that it's empty it's that it's schrodinger's box you have to open it and the acting the box Mm -hmm actually changes what's in there yeah Mm -hmm. that actually gets us into a discussion of whose job that is traditionally is that it traditionally is it the designer's job or is it the gm's job um yeah it it depends on how it depends on how bound the game is to a to a specific setting Okay. Yeah, at that point, that. the the designer is designing both the system and the setting. Mm-hmm. So it's they've taken they've taken the direction of okay, I'm making this game. It sets up its own reality, and this is the reality it happens in with these right. places and these ge- this geography and these cultures. Mm-hmm. And it's. It's their first right of refusal to say what's an app. Right. Um, as a game gets more generic, that falls traditionally to the GM. But trends in modern game design have, uh, in a lot of ways, been bending towards letting the players in on that as well. Yeah, I think that's positive. 
I, I think generally speaking, uh, at least at least considering the player's input, I think is probably a a, a good idea there. Um, there are some games uh, that rely upon that fairly exclusively, almost, you know. Um, <laughs> but I think even in those cases, the the, the designers have given the, the the players a a pretty good set of tools for doing that, you know. If they right, and they they've, and they've made yeah. And they've made the conscious choice to provide those tools. I think right, one of the right, biggest right. things, though, is that it is definitely partially responsibility of the designer because, well, let's face it, like when we go back to the very start of our conversation tonight, it was things like describing an empty room in a dungeon. Like a lot of GMs have never even considered to do that. They're never going to think about doing that. It's like they'll pack tons of stuff in every single room so that there's always something major there. And they will never even consider the idea of like what an empty room has for value. Like it's never crossed their mind. They have no reason to ever try it out. They haven't, they're never going to think about it until the designer points out maybe you should leave some gaps. But a lot of a lot of the tradition of dungeon design kind of shifts the empty rooms into the hallways between rooms. Yeah, but even so, mm. I, it, it's not. Yeah, it's okay, not just. I see Cat's point. Yeah, that particular situation. These GMs are are. I think there are a lot of GMs that leave the empty spaces but don't realize how they're doing it or that they're doing it yeah i mean more so in the sense that like hmm. it's not just in that particular situation but it's pretty much across the board like gms like as humans in general we tend to want to know what's in the box just kind of in general like, if we put something out that's empty, we want to know what's in there. And if you do that by a GM, like, by default, they want to know what's in there, even if they don't tell the players, and they might make sure that they fill every single niche without letting the players fill anything themselves. Sometimes the answer mm -hmm. what should be in the box is what the players say that's going to be in it. Yeah. Or your JJ Abrams and you never let anybody open the box. Because your box is precious. It's in the box. <laughs> or you're Quentin Tarantino and you let the players open the box but never show what's in it. <laughs> yeah, that's good too, man. Just the golden glow of the MacGuffin. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we didn't bring up MacGuffins. Holy crap. How do we pass on that? That's like the that's like if that's the, the name of the empty space, but I think I think I think you probably Google RPG and MacGuffin and get like 200 discussions on how to use them and what they're good for and whatnot. So or any other literary device like Chekhov's gun yeah. or red herring. Sure, sure. Yeah, gaming in empty space or RPG in empty space, maybe not so much. Um, so uh, I think that pretty much covers everything we wanted to get to. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for listening to another. Uh, One thing I want to say, real quick. 
Oh, go ahead. Okay. Uh, because this episode, we talked way more about our games than we usually do. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing for everyone. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to talk more about it. But that was like way longer ago. <laughs> it's okay. We're, we're um, <laughs> Thank you, Gabor. It's it's like we're we're giving little nuggets to the people who stuck with us from like episode one. That way, nobody stuck with I, us. Exactly. One. Everybody who listened to episode one turned it off immediately, including <laughs> most if of they us. They were smart. <laughs> most of us. That's, uh, that's fair. There are some people that yeah. watch a train wreck unfold, so you never know. That's true. That's true. You never know. You never know. And I see no reason um, why they would stop watching us, unfortunately. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, not, not, yep, okay. <laughs> I mean, we're way better. Anyway, yes, carry on. Yes, we are, we are better than, what? Okay. It's turning into the dumpster fire. It's happening for us. Right eyes. now. Get the blood right torches. I'll get them. All right, so uh, with that, this is Rob for Car, Catrice, Jonathan, Cavoir, and Mark signing off. Uh, how the fuck do I stop this thing? Craig, <laughs> leave, leave that in. Leave that in. <laughs> Craig, leave. Oh fuck me! I don't know where. Let me get the command off the thing. <laughs> there it is. That's oh. the end tag of the episode, right there. Yep. <laughs>